<laughs> well, thank you for that lovely introduction. I'm really delighted to be back in Kiev. This evening, the uh, lecture has been advertised as uh, the first turning of the wheel of the Dharma. But uh, actually, I'd like to uh, speak about one aspect of the main teachings that Buddha first taught. Buddha lived about two and a half thousand years ago in India, and he taught many, many different things because he had many different uh, disciples, and he always taught in a way that would be best suited for how they would understand. But the first thing that he taught was uh, about his basic insight of how he became enlightened. And uh, this means that he taught what is called as the Four Noble Truths. These are true facts about uh, life that ordinary people would not see as being facts, but highly realized beings who have uh, seen reality would see that they are true. We'll speak about this in more detail tomorrow, but just uh, to list what these four truths are, he was talking about what are the true types of sufferings that everybody experiences in life, what are their causes, then he taught that it was possible to actually get rid of these problems, to achieve a stopping of them so that they would never recur again. And then he taught about the understanding that would bring that about, bring that uh, stopping about, because it would get rid of the causes of suffering. So this is the uh, basic structure of what Buddha taught, and so he presented that first. When we look at these uh, four truths, these four noble truths, They don't exist in isolation all by themselves, but there's a basis for it, and then there's something that uh, will follow if we really understand these four truths. So basically, in very simple words, the uh, basis for these four truths that the Buddha saw, these four facts of life, are, is, or I should say, is reality. If we want to uh, summarize Buddhism with uh, one word, then as uh, one of my friends, who's also a Buddhist teacher, said, that one word would be realism. In other words, if we could see reality, if we could understand reality and accept it without projections of impossible things that uh, just are not reality, then we would be able to deal with our problems, we would be able to deal with uh, situations in life in a realistic way. So, teachings on reality are the basis for these four truths, and reality has several levels of how things actually exist, how they work, how they function in life. So, Buddha taught about that. And then, From these Four Noble Truths, what becomes very clear, what follows from that, is what direction we want to put in our lives in order to overcome suffering and problems. And this is uh, summarized by what is called, in Buddhist jargon, the uh, Three Precious Gems, usually known by the three Sanskrit words for it, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And to put it in simple language, Dharma is referring to the goal that uh, we are striving for, that goal of getting rid of our problems. Buddhas are those who have achieved that and who teach how to do that ourselves. And the Sangha are the groups of those who are following these teachings and have reached some level of success but haven't uh, reached the final goal yet. So. His Holiness the Dalai Lama wrote a uh, very beautiful uh, text which is a request for inspiration from the 17 great Buddhist masters from this uh, most extensive Indian Buddhist monastery which was like a university, Nalanda it was called. 
So this was the most famous university, it was run like a monastery, and it lasted for ooh, about a thousand years. Don't not exact in that figure, but about a thousand years, and it produced the greatest masters of uh, the Buddhist tradition. So Dalai Lama wrote, it's like a prayer, give me inspiration to follow in your footsteps, this type of thing. And at the end of this, uh, these verses, one to each of these uh, great masters, Dalai Lama has a, a few more verses, and uh, what I'd like to present this weekend is basically a commentary on one of those verses, which basically summarizes what I just explained about the reality and about the four noble truths and about this, these three gems, this direction we want to go in. These three gems are sometimes called the three refuges. Refuge just means that this is the direction that we want to go in, that if we go in that direction, we will save ourselves from suffering and problems. So this is the verse. By knowing the meaning of the two truths, which is the foundation, the way in which all things abide. Abide means how they exist, how they function. So in other words, if we know reality, on the second line, we become certain about how through the four truths we keep entering, but also can reverse our uncontrollably recurring rebirth. In other words, if we understand reality, then we will understand through these four truths how we perpetuate our problems, but also how we can get rid of them. Then, based on that, the third line is brought on by valid cognition, then our conviction that the three refuges are fact becomes firm. So remember, the three refuges, we're talking about the actual goal that we can achieve. In other words, the complete stopping of all our problems so that they never recur again, and the understanding that will bring that about. Now, if you're going to go, if you want to practice Buddhist path, you're aiming for a goal, obviously. How do you know that that goal is possible to achieve? Is it just a fiction? Is it a, a nice story? Or is it actually fact? So many people will strive for the goal just based on faith. My teacher said it was so, and okay, I want to believe, so I believe. And that can work for many people, but it is uh, not always the most stable way of practicing because how are you really convinced that it's possible? So often what happens is after a long time of practice, you start to question what you're doing, because it's really very difficult to get rid of anger and selfishness and attachment and these sort of things, which are the real problem makers. And so progress is very slow. And progress is never linear. It always goes up and down. Some days it goes better than other days. And so if you're just practicing on the basis of faith, then you can get discouraged because uh, it doesn't look as though you're getting anywhere. So then you say, well, is it really possible to achieve the goal? So that's why this verse says, brought on by valid cognition. In other words, you really have understood based on logic and reason that it actually is possible to achieve the goal, that the goal does exist, then your conviction, the goal, and it's possible to achieve it, and there are people who have achieved it, your conviction in that is very firm, that this is fact, this is true. And you believe it's true, not just because it's written in some book that it's true, that this happened, but you believe that it's true, you're convinced that it's true based on the fact that it follows from reality. You know, from the two truths, and then the four truths, and then the goal, the three refuges. And then the fourth line, inspire me to implant this root of the pathway minds that lead to liberation. This word, implant the root, I mean, you don't, I mean, you plant a seed. So uh, here we have, uh, it's called the root, it's not called the seed. And that means that with this structure now, two truths, four truths, three refuges, that uh, this then becomes the root for all the spiritual path, for everything that follows from that. Because then your whole practice is based on 
conviction. You understand what you're doing. You understand that it is possible to achieve the goal, and you understand what that goal is. So this is uh, the verse that I'd like to explain, and in our three sessions then I would propose to explain each of these uh, one line in one, you know, one line in another, and then the last two in the uh, last lecture. That's the structure that I thought to follow. And as I say, I think that this is a very important topic and a very important approach to Buddhism. Because if we're going to follow a spiritual path, I think it's very important to be convinced that it's realistic. It's not just some sort of idealistic fantasy that we're just drawn to with emotion, but it uh, is utterly impossible what it's talking about. So if we are convinced that what we're doing in our spiritual life is realistic, then you can put healthy emotion into it. We need a, a balance of the two. This uh, understanding and then some emotional feeling, compassion, enthusiasm, etc., patience. So, first line is talking about uh, the two truths. Now, this is referring to, it's called the relative truth or the conventional truth. That's one level. And then there's the deepest truth. And there are many presentations of this, but uh, I'll follow the one that the Dalai Lama uses for explaining this. So we're talking here, we talk about the two truths, we're talking about two true facts about everything, about the reality of everything. So one is more surface level and one is the deepest level. So what is the surface level? This is that everything is relative. It's talking about cause and effect. Now, we have that uh, certainly presented in physics, and I think most people would accept physics. That's talking about physical objects. You know, you push a ball and it goes, uh, it moves. It's simple physics, cause and effect. And that can become, of course, very complicated in its description of how physical things happen. So if we look at economic uh, problems, we look at global warming, you look at uh, wars, you look at uh, all these problems, and it's obvious that they don't come from just one cause. They don't come from no cause at all. They don't come from irrelevant causes. But all these situations arise dependently on many, many, many different factors. And not just uh, what's going on at present, but uh, what uh, has happened in the past. Right? If you think of, like in this uh, country, in Ukraine, you can't uh, separate the present situation from the Soviet past, for example, and you can't separate what's going on from the world wars and uh, all of that, the whole economic situation of the world and everything that's developed has been influenced by all of the things that have been going on throughout history. So you can't say what's happening is the fault of just you know one person or one thing that happened. Things arise dependent on huge network of causes and conditions. So this is reality, isn't it? Or if you look uh, in terms of psychology, if you have a, a problem in a family, then again, you can't say that it comes from just one cause or no cause. But everybody in the family has uh, contributed in a causal fashion to the problem in the family. And each member in the family doesn't exist in isolation from their work and school and all the other people that uh, influence them. And the family situation doesn't exist in isolation from society and the economic problems of the society or the political system of the society. That influences the problem as well. So when one starts to think in terms of uh, the realism of this, you see that everything is interconnected. Everything influences everything else. 
So everything that uh, happens is happening as a result of a huge complex network of causes and conditions. So that's reality. Now, if this is the case with physical objects and let's say uh, economic or world problems or family problems, then uh, what about looking on an individual scale with each of us, ourselves? What about happiness and unhappiness? Does that have a cause? And does it come from no cause? Sometimes I feel happy, sometimes I don't feel happy. And there's no way of knowing what's going to, uh, what I'm going to feel in the next minute. Is, uh, so is it happening from no cause or is it happening just from what I'm doing that sometimes I feel happy and unhappy? Well, that doesn't make sense, does it? I could be uh, eating the same thing two different days and one day I feel happy eating it and the other day I don't feel happy eating it. So it's not coming from the food. I can be with my most beloved person and still sometimes feel happy, sometimes feel unhappy. And uh, I could be wealthy and things go well with me and I could still be unhappy. So where does this happiness and unhappiness come from? Is it being sent by uh, some higher being that presses a button? Sometimes you're going to feel unhappy and sometimes you're going to feel happy and just sort of plays with the buttons. Pardon me, I don't mean to be offensive. (laughs) Taking it to a silly extreme. But if everything that we seem to experience like, you know, moving physical objects or uh, you uh, stick your hand in a fire and it gets burned and it hurts. All these things follow laws of cause and effect. Then shouldn't uh, my happiness and unhappiness also follow from understandable laws of cause and effect? This is a question. And this is really the... uh, main point here about uh, reality. Let me talk about these uh, two truths, the relative truth. It's the cause and effect in terms of our behavior, in terms of happiness, unhappiness, etc. I'm talking about within the context of this particular teaching. This is the emphasis in the uh, when we speak about this first of the two truths. In other contexts, other things would be emphasized. So, this brings in the basic Buddhist teachings on karma. Now, what is karma talking about? This is uh, something that is uh, not so easy to understand. There are several explanations of it and a lot of misunderstanding about it. Now, to put it in very simple terms, karma is uh, speaking about compulsiveness. What happens is that uh, our actions, whether positive or negative actions, tend to be compulsive. I feel like yelling at you and then compulsively you yell. I feel like going to the refrigerator to get something to eat and compulsively you just go or I feel like uh, trying to be the most perfect good person and compulsively you act that way. So it could be negative, neutral, or positive. I feel like looking to see if the baby is okay, because I'm very worried, and then compulsively you're constantly looking, constantly checking even much more than is necessary or healthy. Parent that uh, is always asking the child, are you okay? Is everything okay? Could drive the child crazy. But it's from a compulsion. Parent compulsively is uh, worried. And because of that, compulsively, with good intention, asking. So it could be positive or it could be negative, compulsively yelling at the child. So, where does this compulsion come from? And what does it lead to? uh, These are the questions that the teachings on karma ask. And... 
the Buddhist explanation is that uh, we act in a certain way we act on the basis of this compulsion and it builds up certain habits leaves an aftermath on our mental continuum in other words on each moment uh, after that of our experience so of course we can explain this on a physical level that neural pathways connections become uh, built and so then uh, it becomes a, a pattern a habit of behavior but Buddhism certainly doesn't deny that but Buddhism is more talking about the experiential side of this so we build up certain habits certain tendencies and then different situations will trigger that and then what comes from it is that you feel like repeating the action and then the compulsion which is the actual karma arises and you repeat it and you get into situations in which uh, similar things happen to you you know how uh, often people will be in relationships that are not very healthy emotionally and that will uh, end but then they get in another one the same type of pattern so they're meeting someone that uh, is going to produce the same type of pattern in themselves Uh, they seem to be almost attracted to uh, people that they will again have an unhealthy relationship with falling in love always with uh, someone that is unattainable that uh, you can't possibly have as a a partner that's very frequent happening Uh, you fall in love with another one that's unattainable so this is one aspect of karma this uh, compulsiveness and this obviously is a causal type of uh, relationship you act in a certain way with compulsion and it builds up uh, tendencies to repeat it and so in different situations from different uh, conditions it will trigger it and it will repeat so again we have law of cause and effect I think that's fairly easy to uh, accept if we think about it more to accept that it's true but what about happiness and unhappiness and this as well is explained in terms of karma if we act compulsively mixed with disturbing emotions in a, which then results in acting in a destructive type of way this will eventually lead to an experience of unhappiness whereas if we act in a constructive way which means not under the uh, influence of disturbing emotions let's say uh, without anger but with patience and uh, kindness as opposed to acting destructively with anger then eventually we will experience happiness actually it's explained the opposite way around if you experience unhappiness it's because of destructive behavior if you experience happiness it's because of constructive behavior that's the way that it's uh, would be more properly explained first of all although I said it in a very short way we need to understand the difference between constructive and destructive behavior the distinction between these two is not so much drawn on the effect that it has on somebody else for example you could be a a murderer you're very angry with somebody and you cut them with a knife that's destructive on the other hand you could be a surgeon and you cut somebody open with a knife in order to perform an operation that will save their life so obviously the action of cutting somebody with a knife is not the determining factor of whether it's constructive or destructive it's all dependent on the motivation the state of mind with which uh, the action is done so if the action is mixed or motivated by what's called disturbing emotions main ones being anger attachment and greed naivety jealousy arrogance these sort of things selfishness then it's destructive 
even if you're doing something that the action itself is nice. You give somebody a, uh, a nice massage because you want to sexually seduce them because you have great desire that is destructive. You give someone a massage in order to help them with their health. That's constructive. And a constructive action is one which is relatively free of these disturbing emotions. Now, how do we understand the relationship between this type of behavior? You know, behavior based on disturbing emotions, the relationship between that and unhappiness, and the relation between behavior which is uh, relatively free of those relation between that and happiness? This is a very interesting question. And it's a very crucial question because this is what Buddha is talking about. He's talking about how to get rid of unhappiness, suffering. And he says you have to get rid of the causes of it. So here we have the Buddhist analysis of the causes. And again, I think that we can understand this on a physical level and also on an experiential level. Now, when you are experiencing anger, for example, are you at ease? Is your energy at ease? It's not at ease, is it? The energy is disturbed. Are you happy while experiencing anger? I don't think anybody would say they're happy while experiencing anger. Or any of the other disturbing emotions, if you really look at uh, and observe your energy when you're feeling very greedy, you're not calm, you're not at ease, or very attached and you're missing somebody so terribly, you're not at ease. The energy is very disturbed. Whereas uh, if our minds are relatively calm and we're not acting under the influence, we don't feel anger or greed or selfishness or these things, and we're just trying to be kind and so on, energy is much more smooth. It's very helpful to observe this because then you can become a little bit more convinced of it. When you're upset about something, your heart is going faster, you're upset. We say upset. So upset means your energy, your emotions, your whole state of mind is upset. It's not calm. So if we think how pulsiveness, the building up of habits, has uh, something to do with uh, building up neural connections, if we think like that, that makes uh, some sense. I think that also... Now, I don't know if this is scientifically correct, but uh, that there's also a pathway that is a neural pathway that's built up of a disturbed energy type of pathway. And on the other side, if uh, we build up these uh, neural connections of acting in a more positive way, even though it might lead to compulsiveness, compulsive perfectionist, uh, this type of thing. Nevertheless, it could be more calm. Yes, the energy reason. not so uh, disturbed. I'm simplifying. So it could get to, I'm leaving out certain points. You know, you could try to be a perfectionist on the basis of uh, egoism. You know, I've got to be the best and so on. Then, you know, it's a different type of disturbed energy. But I think that uh, these patterns of disturbed energy or of more calm energy are probably the physical basis of happier or unhappier states of mind in connection with the neural connections, the pathways, the habits that we build up. So I think there is some physical basis that we can speak about. And we're talking about long-term effects here not just uh, immediate effects. You could be bothered by a mosquito, you're really annoyed, you're really angry, and you smack it and kill it, and you feel happy. Ah, you know, I got that bastard. Type of a feeling. So we're not talking about what you might immediately experience from a uh, disturbed state of mind and destructive behavior. 
But we're talking about long-term effects. When uh, we talk about karma in Buddhism, in fact, we speak in terms of many lives. So, this is the relative truth, that basically everything arises dependent on causes and conditions, including our general state of mind. Not only what we feel like doing, but also are we happy or unhappy. All right, so this is one aspect of realities. The line here calls it, it's the foundation, the way in which everything exists, functions, works. Now, what about two truths? So two, the second truth is on a deeper level. And on a deeper level, it's saying that although things might appear to exist and function in impossible ways because of our projections, that uh, impossible way in which they appear to exist doesn't correspond to reality. That is referred to by the technical term voidness, which is not an easy term. Saying basically that things don't exist in impossible ways. How could they? So a reality that corresponds to something impossible that we project, that's absent. No such thing. So, simple example, classic example, the child thinks that there's a monster under the bed. Actually, there's a cat under the bed, but the child projects onto the cat that it's a monster. And because the child believes that there actually is a monster under the bed, the child is very frightened, so it has an effect. But that's impossible. There are no such thing as monsters. So voidness is an absence. It means an absence of a real monster that corresponds to the child's fantasy. But take away the projection and there's the cat under the bed. It's not that there's nothing. So, we imagine, out of habit, that uh, things exist in the way that they actually appear to us. We're only aware of what's right in front of our eyes, or what we're actually feeling at the moment. So, I'm feeling unhappy now, and it appears as though that just arose by itself, no cause, not related to anything else, I'm just unhappy. I don't know why, I'm just, uh, I feel bored, I feel blah, I'm unhappy. And it doesn't seem to be related to what we're doing or the people that we're with. It just, all of a sudden, I feel blah, I feel unhappy. It doesn't have to be dramatic, <laughs> low level. So, how does it appear? It appears as though there's no cause, but that's impossible. That doesn't correspond to reality. So that's the deepest truth. The conventional truth is that everything is arising, including my unhappiness or happiness, from cause and effect. That's the reality. But it doesn't appear like that to me. And the deepest truth is how it appears to me doesn't correspond to reality. It's a projection of uh, something impossible. And this really is uh, very, very profound, if you think about it. Let's say you yell at me. We have a wonderful relationship, but all of a sudden you yell at me. You're angry with me. And how does it appear to me? It appears to me, ah, you know, you're angry, you don't love me anymore. And, you know, we really become very, very upset. Because that's all that appears to us, is this person yelling at me. But that isn't the... That doesn't correspond to reality. That yelling at me didn't arise from nothing. And unrelated to everything else. What happens is that we lose sight of the entire relationship that I have with this person. All the other times that I'm with this person. All the rest of the interaction. And the only thing that appears and that seems to exist is they're yelling at me. Well, that isn't the only thing. You forget that it's the whole context, the whole big picture. Also, I'm not the only one in this person's life. This person who yelled at me 
has a life besides me and they maybe went to work and something terrible happened in work or maybe they had something with their parents or they're being influenced by everybody else that uh, they've interacted with it's not just me so that's the deepest truth that uh, voidness that what we project that's impossible doesn't correspond to reality an actual reality corresponding to that is absent Totally absent, never existed, impossible, no such thing. The word for voidness is the same word as zero in Sanskrit. So, because things uh, don't exist, isolated from everything else, then cause and effect works. You can only have a cause if there's an effect. If there's no effect, how can it be a cause? It's only a cause relative to the fact that there's an effect. And there's only an effect relative to the fact that there's a cause. So because things don't exist isolated, or like I sometimes like to explain it, encapsulated in plastic, things interact. Cause and effect works. The verse says that uh, these two truths one hand, the relative truth that everything functions by cause and effect, and the deepest truth that uh, things don't exist in the impossible way of being isolated from each other. They support each other, these two truths. And the verse says that this is the foundation. This is the way in which everything abides. Abides means, it's a word that means that it's how things are situated, how they remain, how they work, how they function, as all these connotations and foundation means that it's the foundation for what comes next it's on the basis of the two truths seeing reality that Buddha then understood the four truths that's the basic explanation of the first line of this verse and as I said it's very deep in terms of what it's talking about it's not talking about something so easy Therefore, I think uh, before we have some uh, time for questions, why don't we take a minute or so to just think about uh, what we've been discussing. If we accept that the physical world works on the basis of cause and effect, that I kick the ball and therefore the ball moves, and it isn't that the ball moves for no cause at all, totally unrelated to anything, so that's impossible. That doesn't correspond to reality. Is there any reason why cause and effect like that, these two truths, shouldn't also apply to my states of mind, my behavior, how I feel, happy and unhappy? This is the thing, too analyze within uh, oneself. Is there any reason why this should not be the case? Uh, And if it's not the case, then how does it work? Why do I feel happy sometimes? Why do I feel unhappy sometimes? Why am I compulsive like this or compulsive like that? Am I happy with no explanation? Or what? We may not know the causes. I mean, that comes in the four truths. But just the fact that there is a cause, this is reality. And it's impossible that things arise from no cause, or from an irrelevant cause, or from just one cause. I'll give a very easy example of what's wrong. You go to the football game and your team loses. Well, the team lost because I was there. So that's obviously an irrelevant cause. And (laughs) it's impossible. But somebody with very low self-esteem could uh, think like that. I'm thinking of someone who did actually think like that. Okay, so let's take a minute to think about these two truths. What actually is reality. Okay, so do you have some questions? Yes? Is it possible to prove um, that there are past and future lives just by means of logic without theology and so on? Uh, There are uh, uh, proofs about uh, past and future lives. It has to do with, first of all, recognizing what is uh, actually being discussed with past and future lives. So what that's talking about is uh, a continuum 
of mental activity an individual stream of uh, continuity of mental activity in which uh, one moment of that uh, mental activity or experiencing is another way of saying it arises dependently from the moment before and follows in a causal type of sequence like I experience eating and then I experience being full so the question really is can this stream of continuity have a beginning or an end an absolute beginning from nothing and then end in which uh, it becomes a nothing so just like matter and energy can neither be created nor destroyed only transformed similar with individual streams of mental mental activity neither be created nor destroyed so if you follow physics in terms of matter and energy that if you have that law of conservation of matter and energy it doesn't make any sense that before the big bang there was nothing so scientists are starting to think in terms of well must have been universes and things before so no beginning because uh, if there was nothing before how does a nothing become a something that's uh, logically very difficult (laughs) if something is really a nothing how could it ever become a something and how can a something become a nothing and then there are uh, all sorts of uh, discussions in terms of uh, can your mental activity come from another source you know an external source does it come from you know like your body comes from the body of the parents does the uh, mental activity come from the mental activity of the parents well that would be very difficult to to demonstrate so these are some of the logical arguments that are used for past and future lives has to do with continuums continuities and the continuity is uh, maintained simply by cause and effect there's nothing solid that uh, continues from moment to moment unchanging so if you think about that every cell in your body has changed from when you were a baby until you're now and yet you look at a picture of a baby picture of yours and you say that's me so come on everything has changed (laughs) so how can you say that's me based on cause and effect a sequence from that until now uh, for instance, my materialist friend. His materialist friend. Materialist friend, yeah. Actually, says when I I am born, then my mind is also born, and when I die, uh, it is in the brain, right? And so my brain will disappear, and my mind will also disappear. How to kind of you know convince this uh, kind of people? Well, first of all, in terms of uh, the brain, when did the brain uh, develop in the uh, fetus? which point did it start and uh, you see Buddhism is not denying that there's a physical basis for me and a physical basis for experiencing things not denying that of course there's the brain there's the neural activity and all of that when it starts is another question but uh, in terms of one particular lifetime but Buddhism certainly accepts that there's a physical basis there's no contradiction with science there but Buddhism is talking about personal, experiential, subjective, individual experiencing so experiencing is different from the physical basis so you can talk about one event like being uh, feeling an emotion you could describe that from a physical point of view or you describe the same event from an experiential point of view they're not contradictory they're just describing the event from two different points of view and the uh, that experiential aspect is supported by some very very subtle energy in addition to the grosser level of the brain and the nervous system and so on so this is uh, when we speak about the continuity into from past lives to this life and this life to future lives this is what is continuing so there is some physical basis to it some energy level of it 
So, how to demonstrate that when the brain is dead, that there's still further experiencing, this is quite difficult, obviously. There have been uh, many cases, even investigated uh, scientifically, with people who have achieved a very high level of realization in the Tibetan tradition that when they are dead, what any doctor would say, they're dead. They stay in meditation, their body doesn't uh, get stiff, they don't fall over or anything like that. They stay in meditation, can be up to uh, two weeks or more. And then when their meditation is finished, then the body drops. So several of these uh, happen a year. Now, of course, it's difficult to uh, go to somebody who's dying and you know say, "Let me put these electrodes on your brain and now die for me, so that uh, I can measure what's happening." But uh, there's some indication that obviously there is an experiential aspect that's going on on a much more subtle level, even after the brain is stopped functioning. And the nervous system has stopped functioning. So, Buddhism would say that the gross mental activity is no longer happening when the body is dead, when the brain is dead. So you're no longer seeing or hearing or uh, thinking conceptually. That's finished. But in that very, very subtle state called the clear mind state, then uh, one is just focused on reality non-conceptually, just straightforwardly. Any other questions? Anybody else? Yeah. Uh, is it possible to experience this true uh, nature of reality, this true reality where we don't have any false conceptions? Is it possible to perceive it directly or it is something impossible? No, no, it is possible. This is you know, what comes next in this uh, presentation. That because there is reality, then it is, and although uh, things don't appear the way that they actually exist, it is possible to get rid of what's causing that distortion. So this is the basic question. This mental activity with which we perceive things and know things, is it by its very nature something that will distort reality, or is it possible that uh, it can function without that distortion, uh, without that projection? So that's why reality is the foundation, is the basis. Now on that basis, then it's possible Then we understand how you actually, well, we'll come tomorrow, how you actually, when it's distorted, then that causes problems and suffering and unhappiness. And it is possible to get rid of all that distortion. And then no more problems. So once you understand that, then you understand that that goal is attainable. The mind is capable of that. So then you have this direction, this refuges. Now you can aim for it, being convinced that it actually is possible to attain. All built on the fact that there is reality and it is possible to perceive it. But requires a very, very long uh, training to familiarize ourselves with reality to cut through the mental blocks. So then you have meditation. Meditation is to familiarize ourselves with it, build up a more beneficial habit. So that then you become accustomed to when you meet somebody, to see them not just uh, in the way that they actually appear in front of your eyes, but to be fully aware that they were a baby and they had a childhood and all the things and all the influences and they will probably have, a, you know, become older, and, you know, to see the whole big context, see everything interrelated. But you have to train yourself to do that. Not necessarily that you see it, but uh, you understand it. You understand everything about the person, the whole past, what the potentials are, because it's all interrelated. And in the beginning, of course, you don't know the details, but that doesn't matter. Just to be aware that there is all of, you know, all the past and all the influences on this person, and that there will be a future, that already opens you up very, very much to the reality. You see a baby. You don't just see the baby as a baby. 
you know, here's a potential adult, and everything that I do now is going to affect how this uh, baby becomes an adult. You look at the whole picture. Reality. Anything else? Well, if not, then uh, thank you very much. You have a question. <laughs> That's a very good way. You see, now I could say that because I said thank you very much, that caused you to ask a question, <laughs> which obviously is ridiculous. Uh, it, uh, it seems uh, quite a funny situation. Our mind creates projections and it itself suffers from these projections. But uh, for what? Why it happens? Why our mind needs everything to make so kind of complicated? Well, it's because of... Uh, you see, it's influenced by many things. One of the things is uh, our hardware. You know, if you think in terms of the uh, analogy of a computer, you, know, you can only see through the holes, these two holes in front of your face. You can't see behind your head, so the hardware is limiting. And also, things are very confusing. Classic example, there's a voice going on in our head, which is the author of uh, worry, oh, what should I do now, what are people thinking of me, etc., etc. And so it feels like there's a little me sitting inside our head, which is absurd. There's no little me. You dissect the brain, you can't find some little me sitting there, worrying. <laughs> Talking all the time. <laughs> But it feels like that. I mean, all that's happening is that uh, the brain is firing in a certain way, that there are certain audio impact type of things, and that's all that's happening. No separate me sitting inside talking. So it's confusing. These are called deceptive appearances. That's because of this hardware. But the hardware isn't the deepest cause. It's basically because of uh, beginningless habit. It just is, uh, we're so accustomed to that. There's no beginning that uh, it just uh, perpetuates. And this is what we're going to be dealing with tomorrow. How this whole mechanism of suffering perpetuates and how you get out of it. So the first step is to stop believing in all the garbage that our mind projects. And you stop believing it when you really are convinced that it doesn't correspond to reality. There is no little me sitting in my head. Okay. <laughs> Do I dare say thank you very much? <laughs> uh, Will that cause another question? Well, um, thank you very much. Hopefully, may whatever understanding we've gained from this go deeper and deeper and make some positive impression that will be of benefit to us all. <laughs>